Once upon a time, in a land not so different from our own, lived a man who was on an endless quest to find a wife. He transversed the country looking for his perfect mate. He met young women, old women, fair and rich, and homely and poor women. Yet none were to his liking. And as he began to tire from his fruitless hunt, his heart began to harden. Bitterness began to fill his soul, and greed and selfishness became his driving force. One day, he came upon a woman unlike all the rest. She was perfect, young, beautiful, wealthy, and in possession of a truly unique quality. You see, the man didn't fall in love with her generosity, kindness, or wit, but rather her solid gold shimmering right arm. They married at once, and although he swore otherwise, it was her golden arm that he prized above all her other gifts. Suddenly, on one cold and lonely evening, the young woman passed. Her husband mourned her loss greatly, displayed true grief and loss. But it wasn't his wife that he missed, but rather her golden arm. So under the cover of night, he creeped to the cemetery and dug up his wife's fresh grave, pulled back the coffin's lid, and looked down upon his wife's lifeless corpse, his eyes drawn to the guilt of her right arm. He cut the arm off and covered up the grave, hoping no one would notice the theft. Quickly, he began to journey home, when all of a sudden, a forceful wind blew his lantern out. He stopped, looked around with fear and curiosity. When he heard, mixed in with the howling wind, a whisper say, Where is my golden arm? Terror filled the man, and he tried to reason with himself that surely it was just the wind. Yet, as he continued on, once again, the wind wailed the unmistakable cry, Where is my golden arm? It was closer now, clearer, and unmistakably angry. He began to run back to the safety of his farmhouse, ditching the dark lantern and shivering and shaking as he tumbled over branches, logs, and his own leaden feet. Once safe in the house, he ran up the stairs hid under the bedclothes, clutching the golden arm. The wind, however, followed, blew open the front door, whooshed up the stairs, and forced open the bedroom door. He could feel the frost of the gale surround his hidden body. The wind whispered, Where is my golden arm? Then silence fell over the room. Suddenly, the covers blew off of the man's shaking frame, leaving him guilty and exposed. He could feel his wife's rage plunge forward, knocking him backwards on the bed while the wind screamed. You've got it!
Welcome to episode 32 of The West London Witch, a podcast where we share stories about those moments when we find ourselves very much not alone. You might recognize the fable of the golden arm, most famously told by American author Mark Twain. Mark Twain is the pseudonym for Samuel Langhorne Clemens, the man responsible for the classic stories of Life on the Mississippi, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, and The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Today, we are lucky enough to have Grace Belanger, the Associate Director of Interpretation for the Mark Twain House and Museum, located in Hartford, Connecticut to share with us the incredible life of San Clemens and the stories of the paranormal that he is still connected to to this very day. I'm Rebecca Strazina, and this is The West London Witch. Episode 32, The Adventures of Mark Twain. All right, well, I guess it's best to start at the beginning. Samuel Langhorne Clements, the gentleman we know as Mark Twain, was born in 1835. And at the time of his birth, Haley's Comet was traveling through the night sky. And Sam's mother, Jane Clements, thought that the comet coming through the night sky was a symbol that her son, who was born really sickly and very poorly, um, was going to do wonderful things. And so that was sort of in the back of her mind as she was raising him and, you know, something that followed him through his life. Sam was born in Florida, Missouri, and grew up in Hannibal, Missouri, in a very traditional home full of Midwestern sensibilities and superstitions. And when he was a child, he got a lot of time out on his uncle's farm, and he heard a lot of ghost stories told to him around the fires Uh, at night when they were out playing on their uncle's farm. And he actually accredits his storytelling ability to one of the enslaved persons on his uncle's farm. Um, One of the most famous stories that Twain tells is the tale of the golden arm. And he heard that when he first sat around those campfires in the Midwest in Missouri from this uh, slave that was named Daniel. Sam left home at a young age to find fame and fortune, and through his travels, he encountered lots of new and interesting people and many different stories and superstitions as well. And he was always writing, and and there were a few times when he would talk about how places would invoke um, the feeling of spirits or the feeling of ghosts. He talks about being out in Las Vegas. say Las Vegas, because that's, of course, what you think of when you think of the Nevada Territory. (laughs) Um, He was out in the Nevada Territory, and he said he would be walking through the cemeteries, and he could see the the apparitions rise above the gravestones of the people that had been buried there. But he really had his most personal experience when he was a riverboat uh, pilot on the Mississippi River. In Sam's late teens, early 20s, he had been a printer and decided it was time to move on from that job and take on a new adventure. He decided to become a riverboat pilot on the Mississippi River, and his younger brother, Henry, decided to follow suit and join his brother on the boats as an engineer. 
they were actually working together on the same riverboat called the Pennsylvania. And Sam, Sam was a little bit of a, uh, uh, a bad boy, I guess you would call him. Uh, he he liked uh, he liked to drink and party and things like that. And one night he got a little bit drunk or had a little bit more to drink than he possibly should have. And when he gets back to the riverboat that he was working on, the Pennsylvania, his captain, the ship's captain, says, "You know, you can't you can't work this way. You can't." get off my ship. You got to go sober up. So Sam goes to spend the night in a hotel um, and, you know, probably passes out in his bed. And while he's sleeping it off, he has what can only be described as extremely lucid dream. You know, one of those dreams where you can touch and you can feel and you can taste. Well, he has one of these dreams that he describes and it is of himself walking into sort of a hastily put up tent in the middle of a very foggy field. And as he walks over to a bed, he sees his younger brother, Henry, laid out under some pristine white sheets, uh, obviously been very harshly injured, um, burns on a good portion of his body, He's, he's obviously not doing very well. And Sam looks to the nurse who's standing next to him and he says, what, what can I do? And she says to him in the dream, she, the nurse says, you should find a suit to bury him in and reach out to his family. In the dream, Sam leaves the tent to go back to his suitcase and retrieves a brown suit. He goes back to the tent And this time when he enters, he sees a pine coffin resting on two sawhorses. As he looks down into the coffin, he sees the body of his brother, Henry, in a very ill-fitting brown suit. And Henry's holding in the center of his chest a bouquet of white roses with a single blood red rose in the center. So he realizes when he wakes up that it was just a dream And he goes off to work um, or goes back to the docks with his stuff and gets on the very first ship to get on the very first ship, I should say. He notices that there's an unusual amount of activity and people are running to and fro while they're on the docks. And that, you know, a lot of people are jumping on to, to boats and they're all headed south. And he finally asks some gentleman that he knows what's going on. And the gentleman looks at Sam and says, didn't you hear? There's been an accident. The Pennsylvania exploded last night. Dead and dying are being brought to Memphis, a field in Memphis. Of course, Sam's brother's on that ship and Sam's in an absolute panic. So he gets on the very first riverboat heading south and travels down to where the accident occurred. And when he gets off the ship, he started looking for survivors and looking for crew of the Pennsylvania. And he's finally pointed to a field. And in the field, there are two tents. He's brought to the first one and there he sees his younger brother laid out in a bed. And he turns to the nurse and of course she says, you should get in contact with his family and bring him a suit to be buried in. He goes back to where he left his bag 
He pulls out his only suit that he has available and he realizes it's the exact brown suit that he had seen on his brother the night before. When he gets back to the field, he's directed not to the hospital tent, but to the other tent. And when he walks in, there are pine coffins laid against the floor and on the walls. And there in one of those coffins is his brother. Now, everything is exactly the same as his dream, except for the bouquet of white roses with the red rose in the center. And he thinks this is really, really odd. This is really bizarre. And as he turns around, in walks a nurse with a bouquet of white roses with a single red rose in the middle. From that moment on, Sam believes that he possesses what he calls the powers of the mind, the ability to somehow connect with the spirit world. Understandably, Sam never really recovered from the tragic passing of his brother. He began to go to spiritualist shows and talk with mediums to see if he could reconnect with his beloved Henry. And of course, here in the United States, spiritualism is on the rise. It's been slowly, you know, being thought of as a a way of, of reaching out to those beyond the veil prior to the Civil War. But after the Civil War, it becomes a huge movement. And when he is finally married to Livy Langdon Clements, uh, the woman that he falls in love with over the course of a a day and a half within meeting her. Uh, He actually proposes at their very first meeting. Um, They are sort of in a society that spiritualism and spiritual shows and mediums are often brought into the parlors of those homes and often sought out by the people they knew. And even later in life, after they lost their son Langdon uh, and Susie, Sam's oldest daughter, who's the only person that we know that died in the Mark Twain house, um, passed, the family would, would talk with mediums in the hopes that they could get a message from Susie and Langdon and even Jervis uh, Livy's father. Unfortunately, Sam never did connect with any of his lost loved ones, but he certainly did try. And he had a very open and hopeful view of the supernatural. All of this brings us to what's going on in the Mark Twain house today. Um, Mark Twain House was owned by Sam and Livy Clements for 17 years. And over the course of the 17 years, they were a very happy family. Uh, Unfortunately, in 1891, Sam had made some really bad investments and they had to leave Hartford uh, to go live in Europe, where it was actually less expensive to live in hotels and rented homes than it was to maintain a house in Hartford, Connecticut, which at the time was the wealthiest city in the United States. Um, Sam is traveling around Europe, giving lecture tours and trying to rebuild the fortune that he lost. And his family is basically all over the globe. You know, mom, Livy, and the girls are at some point in Berlin and one point in Paris. And, you know, then the girls, two of the girls come over and stay with their grandmother in Elmira, New York. 
and uh, Sam and his middle daughter and his wife are still over in Europe. So they're really split up for about five years. There's really not a very coherent family unit. And it's at this point in 1896 that Susie, Sam's oldest daughter, and the one that we all suspect was probably his favorite, comes to Hartford to visit. And while she's here in the summer of 1896, she falls ill. And the people that are renting the house from Sam and Livy Clements say to Susie, come home. You'll stay here in the house. You'll recuperate among your own things. And, you know, the family had intended the whole time that they were over in Europe to return to Hartford once they had rebuilt the fortune. So Susie went home, ready to heal in a familiar environment. Yet sadly, on August 16th of 1896, Susie died of spinal meningitis. And Sam and Livy were half a world away when she fell ill. And Sam learns of Livy, uh, Susie's death by a telegram that simply states, Susie has been peacefully released. Now, the worst part about that is, of course, at this time, ship-to-shore communications is non-existent. And Livy and Clara, Sam's middle daughter, and his wife are on the ship that she had immediately jumped on to go home to be with her daughter during her illness uh, when the news comes to Sam that Susie's passed. So Sam has no way of reaching Livy to let her know that this has happened. So he telegrams everybody he knows in the United States that's near New York Harbor and asks them to go meet her ship at the time that it's supposed to, you know, land. Um, Unfortunate, so that she doesn't learn the news of her daughter's death uh, from somebody, a stranger or something. And when she gets there, the intent is that people that she knows and people that love her will be there and able to impart the news. And he's immediately going to return the next ship and be there for her. Unfortunately, the ship got to shore six hours early and Livy learned of her daughter's death by the headlines in the New York newspapers. Livy refused to ever go back to the house. And the family eventually sold it in 1903. Originally, it was sold to a private family. Then it became a school for boys, a boarding house for women, then the children's branch of the public library. It became apartments for a spell. And in 1929, the Mark Twain house was acquired by the friends of the Mark Twain house. Of course, 1929, really bad time to acquire property here in the United States. So they couldn't start the restoration of the home or start the museum up until the mid-1950s, but they did hold on to it very tightly and they kept it as intact as they could. And they finally started restoration on the property in the 1950s, at which time things started to happen in the house. You know, people started reporting or in whispers, not officially reporting, but in whispers, you know, there were talk. There was talk about smelling cigar smoke throughout the house, very prominently smelling cigar smoke at odd times of the day and night. And then there were 
reports of apparitions, um, a woman in white, a woman in black, uh, an African-American gentleman, um, a caretaker type person. All of these sort of stories were circulating sort of behind the scenes, nothing official. Nobody would ever talk about anything official um, until 2009. In 2009, a woman visiting the Mark Twain house took a photo of the house at twilight. On further inspection, she noticed that there were two female figures in the window, a woman and a child looking back at her. Shocked at what she had captured, she contacted the management of the Mark Twain house as well as Smoking Gun Research Agency. Smoking Gun contacted the Mark Twain house and asked to do an investigation. From there, things really took off. It wasn't long before the Sci-Fi Channel had featured the Mark Twain house on Ghost Hunters, and the house began to gain renown as a haunted location. And rightly so. The paranormal activity is truly incredible and really connects the past to the present. One of the best stories that we have of the family's time in the house to sort of show you that the home itself was a true family home. It wasn't just some well-known author raising his kids. He was truly a family man and his family were well, well connected and they, they definitely loved each other. One of the things that Twain claimed to be or Sam claimed to be was a Connecticut Yankee by adoption, but a Missouri roughneck in all other things. And he truly, truly had some less than proper behavior uh, around guests and such. And when Livy was trying to raise her girls in a very proper upbringing, because Livy, of course, comes from sort of a higher class than Sam himself does, she develops a game called Dusting Off Papa. And what this game is, the three daughters would sit during dinner parties on the front stairs in the hallway and they could look into the dining room and from where they sat, their mother could see them on the staircase and they would have colored cards and they would listen to the conversations that were going on around the dinner table and they would listen to what Sam was saying and what he was doing and such. And if he did something that wasn't proper, they'd raise a colored card. So if he didn't use his napkin, it would be a blue card. Or if he swore, it would be a green card. Or if he didn't use the right silverware, it would be a yellow card. And so Livy had the girls trained to raise the colored cards. And then she had Sam trained to listen for the color to be worked into the conversation. And if she, if the girls raised a blue card, Livy would include the word blue in the next statement that she made and Sam would have to adjust his behavior. So this, this is a regular game that the kids played with mama and papa when they were in the house. And that leads into the story that one of my colleagues, a gentleman named Andy tells of a time when he was in the front hall. Um, he was talking to a group visiting learning about Mark Twain. And as he looks up on the staircase, he sees three glowing blue figures 
sort of standing along the stairwell, looking towards the dining room. And he says that they're trying to engage him in play. It wasn't scary. It was very playful. It looked like they were ducking down and they were peeking up over the banister and they were trying to play hide and seek with him. So his experience ties directly into something that we know happened in the house. It's also known that while the family lived in the home, they had many servants, the most famous of which was George Griffin, the family butler. He was a former enslaved worker who made his way north in search of a better life and became a fond addition to the Clemens home. And George becomes very connected with the family. He was a very bad butler for most part. Like he didn't really want to do any work, Um, but he remained with the family and was very loyal to the family for 17 years while they lived in the house. Um, One of the apparitions that has been reported in the house is an African-American gentleman usually seen in the area of the home where George, George's bedroom, because he did have a room in the house on the third floor. That's usually where the apparition is seen. But we've also had um, one of the taps, the paranormal, Atlantic Paranormal Society gentleman, Adam Berry, came in and he did a, a flashlight session, you know, use the right flashlight for yes, the left flashlight for no, and the center flashlight for anything else you want to do. And as Adam is talking, uh, asking questions about who's responding to his questions, uh, you know, he asks if it's Susie and nothing happens. If he asks if it's um, Clara and nothing happens, he asks if it's George and the flashlights go crazy. Grace herself hasn't seen George's ghost but she has been around while others have. Once, while guiding a tour around the home, Grace's guests got a lot more for their money than just a view of the rooms in the garden. So I was standing in front of George's bedroom door, and the people that were standing looking at George's bedroom door, their eyes all got really wide. And I, I looked behind me, and when I looked back, I'm like, what's going on? And they said, there was, there was somebody behind you. He looked, he looked like he was African-American and I'm like, well, there's nobody there now. Um, but they all, they all saw him. And that's not the first time that's been reported. Another common sighting in the house is that of a somber woman clad head to toe in black. And what's so fascinating is that we know exactly who that woman is. One of the big tragedies of the Clements' life was when they lost their son, Langdon. Their firstborn son was a, uh, was a boy. His name was Langdon. He was born the year after they got married and unfortunately died when he was 18 months. He had diphtheria. And uh, Livy was devastated. And of course, during that time, you have mourning practices where Um, They would collect hair from those that had passed and make jewelry and wreaths out of it. Uh, They wore mourning clothes, the black clothes, and, uh, you know, they used um, pansies, the symbol of a pansy for remembrance. And Livy had an outfit made, a black dress made with 
purple and yellow pansies embroidered on the dress. And one of my colleagues was on the second floor of the Mark Twain house one day. And he, she was talk, he was talking about how Langdon had been lost. He was standing in the master bedroom. And as he looked around the room, out of the corner of his eye, he sees a woman in black with purple and yellow flashes on the dress. And later when he thinks about it, those purple and yellow flashes are pansy in shape. So he believes Livy was there listening to the story of Langdon's death and wanted him to know that she was in remembrance of Langdon wearing the black dress. It's clear that even in death, Sam and Livy are devoted parents. As this isn't the only occasion that a story about their children has elicited an unexplainable response. But when I was a guide, it was probably January or February, and I was bringing a group of 14 to 16 people into the house. And the way I give my tour is I, you know, talk about the fun times that the family had throughout the first few rooms. And then because of a quote that Sam, a a quote of Mark Twain's, um, I talk about how they lost Susie in the library of the house. Um, Sam doesn't really know a lot about how Susie died, well, where Susie died in the house. And he didn't make it back for her memorial or her funeral. Um, The memorial, the viewing was actually held at the, the house itself. And when he talks about it in his autobiography, which he wrote many years later, he talks about how he hoped she was laid out for her viewing in the library where he, she, and Clara had been children together, referencing all the times that they played games in the library and such. Um, And just as I finished that quote one day, it was twilight and I was with this group of 16 people the loudest noise you could possibly imagine occurred sort of off to our left and above us. And it sounded like a cabinet had fallen on the ground or somebody had broken something and everybody in the group heard that noise. They all heard it and we all jumped. It was so loud. And, you know, I didn't know how to explain it. And I was worried that something had happened or a a visitor that was on another tour had fallen or something horrible had occurred. So I asked my group to stay in the room and I walked to the door and coming in the front door was another tour group. My colleague, Jason, was bringing in a group. And I looked at him and I said, what was that noise? He's like, what noise? Nobody else had heard it. The group that was up on the second and third floors didn't hear the noise either. It was just my group. And the timing of it was just so suspicious because it was just as I finished the story about Susie. And uh, when the Atlantic Paranormal Society comes in to investigate the house, they talk a little bit about my the experience that me and my group had had. And as they finished talking about it, in the recording and in the episode, they hear the noise, the same exact noise that I had heard and my group had heard. And they go chasing it around. They can't find it either. So 
we all call it racist noise. (laughs) The great thing about the Mark Twain house is that nearly all of the spiritual encounters have been mainly fascinating, not frightening. You really feel as though you're getting the opportunity to glimpse back into the past, into the life of the Clemens family. But of course, there are always exceptions to the rule. Uh, We started giving graveyard shift tours is what we call our ghost tours. And one one year we had a woman who decided to bring her elderly aunt on the tour. And at the very beginning of the tour, she explained to the tour guide that the aunt didn't speak a lot of English. So she was going to be translating the tour to the aunt. Ross, who was the tour guide, said, no problem. You know, that's fine. And as they're walking through the house, Ross is telling all the stories and all the experiences that people have had. And they go, they're going from the second floor to the third floor in the house. When the woman, the woman who doesn't speak English, the aunt, sort of has some kind of fit and starts wailing and starts sort of crawling up the stairs like she's trying to get away from something. And when she gets up to the top of the stairs, in perfect English, she says, get out, leave now, get out. And Ross is watching all of this and looks at the, the, the niece and the niece is like, she doesn't speak English. This isn't her. The woman just sort of went silent after that. And Ross called me. I was at the front desk and security to have the woman helped. Um, And basically what it was explained to us later by the niece was that the elderly woman saw an apparition coming up the stairs towards her. And she tried to crawl up the stairs to get away from the apparition. And the apparition went into her and wanted this woman and her niece to leave the house. Like, they had to get out. There was something wrong. As truly terrifying as this experience was, I believe that the Clemens family and Sam himself are happy with the way the house is being preserved and enjoyed by the public and the incredible staff who pour their love and dedication into keeping the memory of the family alive. Not all that long ago, we had uh, a medium come through And she was talking with my colleague, Rebecca, um, about what her impressions of the house were. And they were standing in what's called the mahogany guest bedroom. It's a first floor guest bedroom. It's the largest bedroom suite in the house. It is beautifully appointed. It's the last room that we restored. And Rebecca and this medium were standing in the, the room and the medium goes, can you feel him? Can you feel him? And Rebecca goes, who? And the medium says, he's here. He's right behind you. He has his hand on your shoulder and he says, you've done an excellent job. And Rebecca's like, who? Now Rebecca has been with the Mark Twain house for over 20 years. She is the longest employed employee at the house as of this date. And she started working there when she was in college and she's been promoted up to director of historic interpretation. She's the one that we look to for guidance to tell his stories 
She's the one that keeps us honest and makes sure that the Mark Twain house is personally represented and Mark Twain stories are told honestly and with all the passion that we can feel for his family and his life. And the medium says to her, Mark Twain, he's here. He appreciates what he, you do for him every day. What a gorgeous affirmation that the work being done in the home is truly honoring the memory of this precious family. The end of San Clemens' life is much like the beginning, for it was written in the stars. Sam was born under Haley's Comet and passed in 1910 as Haley's Comet once again soared through the night sky. A few months prior to his passing, Sam actually wrote in a letter that stated, I came in with Haley's Comet. It's coming again next year. The Almighty has said, no doubt, now there are these two unaccountable freaks. They came in together. They must go out together. And on April 21st, 1910, one day after the comet had once again journeyed through the sky, Sam as well ascended to the heavens to join it. Well, if you are uh, interested in visiting the Mark Twain house and can't actually come in person, you can go onto our website, marktwainhouse.org, and you can check it out our virtual tour. We are also open 360 days a year to visitors and you can come take a tour. It is guided tour only. Uh, and we would love to have you come visit. We also do our graveyard shift tours and we also have what we call our living history program where you can go on tour with someone from Twain's own life, an actress or an actor portraying Livy Clemens or Susie Clemens or George Griffin will take you through the house and tell you their tales of the family of Mark Twain and what it was like to live and work at the house. Do you have a spooky story you'd like to share? I'd love to hear it. Drop me an email at thewestlondonwitch@gmail.com, at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at The West London Witch. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. And come and follow us for additional content on Instagram and Facebook. Until next time, Merry Meet, Merry Part, and Merry Meet again. The West London Witch is created by me, Rebecca Strazina. Our sound designer and production magician is the incredible Danny Cross. Our theme music was bespokely written and performed by the wickedly talented Kyle Hall. Our cover art is the beautiful collaboration between Lizzie Wilson and Jake Bowser. Special thanks to Missionaid Bowers, our quality control and biggest cheerleader. And thank you to you, all of our listeners all over the world. These are your stories. Thank you for sharing them.